You know He's the giving problem. me the look. He's giving you know me the, the look. problem with you young people today. No, Dave. Tell me what's the problem with all the young people in the world? Not all, just you. Oh, young you people today. The problem is you're control freaks. <laughs> you turned your mic off on accident. It wasn't my fault. We had to start over. Okay, but hey. Uh, a, I didn't turn my mic off. B, the whole mic felt completely off the table. I don't know who's responsible for that. You? Blame- oh, of course, I'm I'm to blame. But anyways, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. We're a little disheveled. The Griffith Conference Studio's up for grabs. Half the equipment's not working. Right now I got half an earphone and one ear and, and so forth, just so we can hear one another. What have you got to say for yourself, Holes Claw? It's working brilliantly. <laughs> we got this new setup with a soundboard because we're about to sit down and interview someone else. And we got to do that through Skype, but we're doing a little intro for today's episode, which is a yeah. special episode. Yesterday, Scott McKnight uh, had me on his podcast. What a privilege. What a privilege. Me on McKnight's podcast. And you know, uh, we had a good talk about a lot of things. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Kingdom Conspiracy, that book uh, that he wrote two couple, two years, a year and a half ago, uh, where some people thought he uh, uh, combined or affiliated the church with the kingdom a little too closely. And he, and he put it in the uh, preamble to the book, the, the, the dedication page for Fitch. And then he wrote my own personal copy to, uh, he wrote underneath there, um, who needs to write this, or no, excuse me, who needs to read this book more than any, more than he knows. Okay. So I, uh, I wrote Faithful Presence and I, I, uh, wrote the initial page there for McKnight, Wink Moticon. <laughs> so on your title page, there's a Wink Emoticon to, to Scott McKnight. That's brilliant. Right. So and he you had know, university didn't like it. They said, that's not professional. I said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point to be made here. And so, uh, obviously, I'm trying to take an, uh, an idea. I'm, I'm trying to understand the church and the relationship between the church and the kingdom in a way which is much more, I would say, open and engaged to the world. Although I don't think that's Scott's intention there in Kingdom of Conspiracy. I think he got a little misread on that one. Anyways, we had a wonderful conversation. All right. So this about is a faithful presence. This is a special episode, a cross episode with Kingdom Roots, which is Scott McKnight's podcast, Kingdom Roots podcast. You go check it out. We encourage everybody to subscribe to Kingdom Roots Podcast. Absolutely. We'll be back with another episode soon. Over and out, or I hope you enjoy the interview, episode, conversation, dialogue, diatribe. Who knows what you got? I haven't even heard it yet. Okay, enough. Let's go. David, uh, this is your colleague, Scott McKnight, and I'm wondering where you are right now. Well, Scott, I'm sitting in my office, and uh, to the right of my computer is a delicious uh, McDonald's coffee, large, three creams, and uh, I'm just relaxed and uh, ready to go and and talk with my colleague, my esteemed colleague, and I do mean that, esteemed colleague, Scott McKnight. So thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, and I'm wondering uh, if you're wondering what I'm drinking. I'm not. I actually probably can take a good guess. It's it's, it's that snobbish thing with the little cups you put in that that uh, expensive. Uh, I don't know what it is. Is it, what, what do you call that thing? Well, David, I'm drinking. I have a bean espresso blend made in my Rancilio uh, coffee or uh, espresso machine with a little bit of milk uh, that has been steamed. And I have to say that. Uh, you're drinking some caffeine-laced 
tasteless coffee compared to the deliciousness and gloriousness of I have a bean. Yeah, but Scott, I don't have to actually make it. I don't have to go. That sounds like an awful lot of work. I just go through the drive-thru, pick it up, and boom, I'm done. It sounds like you have to go through like 10 minutes worth of work just to get a cup of coffee. Hey, am I am I hearing from you that you are are joining in the consumerist mentality of drinking coffee made in the big shop by the big man in the big institution? But I'm I'm just taking it organic and lo- and local. Huh? Is that what I'm hearing? I don't think it's organic or local what you're doing. But yes, I am a consumerist when it comes to coffee, and uh, I don't think we should go any further with this discussion because this. This this gets out of your discipline. My discipline is culture theory. Yours is New Testament. I'll I'll you know I'll do a number on you if we keep going this direction. <laughs> well, David, uh, I want to have you in because of your recent book. The first one that I see listed here is a book called Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's that's not the book you wrote. That's by J. D. Vance. The book that you've recently written uh, that is. I don't think is quite out yet, but is soon to come out from InterVarsity Press. is called Faithful Presence, Seven Disciplines That Shape the Church for Mission. And David, you probably know, because I've said this to you over the years, um, I, I have found great value in my life from the spiritual formation movement people in talking about spiritual disciplines, which sort of and our circles uh, got its start in the early mid '80s with Richard Foster's book, "Celebration of Discipline," and then got another kickstart with Dallas Willard's uh, "The Spirit of the Disciplines." But I've often argued that uh, these disciplines tend tend to focus on individual Christians growing spiritually and forming a, an individual intimate relationship with God, so much so that it's all about the me and the I and the self, and not enough in those books at times about the church. So I've argued, and I've talked to you about this, uh, that we, we need a list of the spiritual disciplines shaped for the church. And Barry Jones in Dallas wrote a, a book on this topic not too long ago that was helpful so I was re- very excited when you began to chatter around the school and drop in my office announcing how apocalyptically significant your book was going to be when it came out uh, and all the joy uh, that we've had talking about it. But I'm really serious when I say I'm excited about the arrival, uh, the soon arrival of this book, uh, Faithful Presence, because it focuses again on spiritual disciplines needed in a local church if that church is going to become missional. So, David, I would like you to sort of give us uh, the big idea and then talk briefly. Uh, Is that possible for you? Uh, At any rate, I'm going to ask you to talk briefly about each of the seven disciplines. Hey, before I do that, uh, I think you and I are on the same page here when it comes to uh, Dallas, Dallas Willard. Uh, whom both you and I love with great affection and uh, the many ways he's taken evangelicalism into a whole new realm of understanding the kingdom and salvation. But if there's one beef I always had with Dallas, 
it was that he had no ecclesiology. He had no understanding of how the church shapes people's lives into the kingdom. And so it often devolved into a, uh, well, uh, it could devolve into a legalism, the disciplines. Now, he had a very good, well-developed understanding of why the disciplines are not uh, a legalism in, in that way. But still, I always felt he was a good Baptist. He didn't have good ecclesiology. you have anything else you can say about that before I go into why? You know, this- I, I, uh, you know I, I don't know how much Baptist theology influenced Dallas because he began to worship in a vineyard community and was more pneumatological. But I do agree with you that at times the spiritual formation movement uh, gets a little too individualistic, so I would agree. And that's why I like James Bryan Smith's uh, projects in the Good and Beautiful Life uh, community, etc., Good and Beautiful God, is because uh, James Smith takes Richard Foster and Dallas Willard much closer to local church action. So the spiritual formation uh, disciplines created by a a healthy narrative move closer to the church. So yes, I I know you and I are on the same page on this, and that's why we need your book, Faithful Presence. Tell us us why you called it Faithful Presence. Well, uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. One of the reasons, maybe not the most important one, is the idea that James Davison Hunter uh, created a well, wrote a book to change the world in which he ended with uh, a fabulous uh, couple of chapters on faithful presence. But I always felt it didn't go far enough. It 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 had the same problem that I feel James K. Smith, K.A. Smith does. Um, and now that we're talking about Dallas and Richard Foster, they do in that we tend to think the church is about producing individuals to send them out into the world. Uh, to go do, to vocationally uh, call the world to what it should be according to the created order, so to speak. So I always felt, no, that's not going to work because sending individuals out as volunteers into the world, uh, shaped to be good Christians, to call the world into, you know, the spheres of, of created order, like this is what it means to do business according to the kingdom of God, or this is what it means to do art or education or family. I always felt that didn't work because these said individuals would become absorbed into the world. And so I felt we needed to go a step or two further than James Davison Hunter and understand that God uh, shapes the church to be present to his work in the world. <clears throat> so faithful presence is being how the church becomes present to God's presence in Christ and where he is taking the whole world, faithful presence. And that takes some disciplines. Um, and I, I kind of I work off of the idea that, um, the, that presence, the understanding of the presence of Christ, if we don't do it together as the church, discerning his presence around the table and the other ways that Christ has promised to be present specifically to his people, we then won't be able to discern what he's doing in the world. So that's where the idea the idea of faithful presence becomes so important to me. So for you, faithful presence is, uh, it begins with the presence of God in Christ through the Spirit in the world, in the church, and we join in that presence by participating uh, in it through the disciplines. Is that fair to say? 
that's fair to say. And so, um, you know, uh, a major part of the book is uh, is how, uh, let's call it the sacraments, the Roman Catholic sacraments, which sacramentally mean what they mean, that God, through this practice, uh, becomes specially present. His, his divine grace becomes revealed in this practice or um, discipline. And what I tried to show was that the early church, like table fellowship, the Eucharist was more than just something we did together as a gathering, but it was something we shared in our whole lives. And I developed it into three circles. The close circle, that's what the Anabaptists call, or the brethren specifically call the the uh, institutional Eucharist. It's close. Some people might say closed. Other people might say fenced. But the idea is we are all together as people of God in Christ, submitting to his lordship, his reign, discerning his presence. And that's why discernment is so crucial in the closed circle. But it just doesn't stop there. It then goes into our neighborhoods in what I call the uh, dotted circle, where it's still a circle of Christians. It's led by, it's hosted by a Christian, but yet there's avenues for non-Christians to see and understand what's going on there. So the Christians are discerning Christ's presence there, but non-Christians are able to see what's happening. And then I say it goes further, what I call the half circle, where we are now uh, operating as guests sitting around the tables of our various neighborhoods, bars, uh, Starbucks, um, children's moms groups, all the places we gather sharing a beverage or sharing a meal or sharing food and food. And we must tend to what God's doing in those special places as well. So what I'm trying to say is these are social practices where Jesus promises to be present among us, but they don't, they, uh, somewhere around Constantine, Roman church, we took these things and managed them to be inside the church. I'm saying, no, it was always meant to be a whole way of life. Well, that's good, at least the parts I understood. <laughs> David, David, I'm wondering uh, now, um, th- with these circles, these are circles of impact that are a challenge to the Kuiperian spheres of sovereignty, as I perceive them. Tell me what the, the, the various chapters of your book, which, uh, what are the seven disciplines that you examine. Can, can you list them for us first and then maybe offer a little bit of explanation and I'll try to chime in when I think I have something to say. Yeah, well, we start out with the Eucharist or the Lord's Table. Uh, I think I, if, if I recall, I don't have the book in front. Actually, the book comes out in three weeks, so I don't have a copy of it in front of me. It's on my computer. I'm on my computer talking to you right now. So, I'd, But anyways, all that to say, we start out with the Eucharist. We go to reconciliation, the practice of reconciliation, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. We go then to proclaiming the gospel, where I'm playing, you know, off of places like Luke chapter 10 and the first part of 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about proclaiming the gospel, and not as in power, not as in wisdom of the world, but in weakness and humility. Then I go to uh, being with the poor. And um, the least of these, playing off of Matthew 25. Uh, then we go to being with children. One of the texts I use there is Matthew 18, 1 through 5. You'll notice, by the way, well, let me finish. The fivefold ministry or the gifts of the Holy Spirit are a practice of, of uh, presence 
I contend. And then lastly, the practice of prayer, or what I call kingdom prayer, uh, because, and I say this practice undergirds all the other uh, sacraments, now or, or practices, disciplines. Now you'll notice, by the way, that A, all those seven disciplines um, have some relationship to the sacraments and or the the traditional Roman Catholic Anglican liturgies of our day. I do not treat baptism and I do not treat marriage, which are within those seven sacraments, traditionally in the Roman Catholic sacraments, only because those are not repeatable uh, sacraments. Those are initiatory ones that hopefully we don't repeat, but actually, you know, we live into for the rest of our lives. So that's how the seven practices came into being. You know, David, this is uh, th- this is a pretty unique listing of disciplines. At least they're fresh, uh, and they're not simply the regurgitation of the old disciplines or even you know the old instruments of unity in the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Instead, they are um, they are largely practices that will help form a community into a kingdom vision so that the church starts to look like a, a counter world where the Spirit of God is being unleashed. So I, I, I like this. I like the oddity of, uh, let's just say, I don't think it is common in spiritual discipline discussions to talk about being with the poor or being with children. I mean, uh, I have a, a friend, uh, my, my, our pastor, and his wife, uh, his name is Susan Greener, and she's a professor at Wheaton. And Susan's uh, mission in life and her passion in study is to care for the children of this world, especially third world, third world children who are suffering. And she finds, uh, you know, the importance of the, the vision of children in the Bible. And she's so right about this. There, are, there is a lot about children in the Bible. So this, this, is, uh, this is a real breath of fresh air for me to hear these sorts of disciplines being discussed as formative practices and disciplines in a church that will help shape a community in a missional direction. I wonder if you'd bounce off of that. Well, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so notice, so, so my contention is, that uh, somewhere around uh, 313 A.D., and that's, that's just the uh, symbolic uh, time when Constantine uh, got saved and took over Rome and, 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 and issued an edict of tolerance towards the, Roman, towards the Christian church. But somewhere around there, following the next 100 years, uh, I don't know, 27 million people became Christians, and they had to take what was a discipline of regular everyday life and turn it into a program at your local church because they needed a way— to catechetize children into the faith. And so confirmation to this day is a sacrament. It is a, it is, for, for the established churches, it is uh, infant baptism and then confirmation. And what happens in that process is the presence of Christ. Um, well, what I wanted to say was, no, there's a whole way of being with children where we recognize that Christ is present when we are with children. Let's resist making uh, being with children into a program, and let's focus on the practice or the discipline of being with children. And so I talk about how Life on the Vine, the church, 
my wife and I planted, and then the whole squads came along, and, and blah, blah, blah. And I talk about how at the very beginning, we said everybody's got to be involved in, in children's ministry. Everybody's got to sign up. Every, uh, we'll have specific teachers in the children's ministry, but everybody's got to go be with them at least once every eight weeks. And that was a bit of a, a paradigm shift for most people. But then, what, what, did you, what did you mean by... Uh, what what are you talking about when you say they have to be with them every eight weeks? That that sounds like a program, but I know it's not. Uh, well, yeah, everything can be turned into a program anytime you lay down any kind of uh, organized principles. But uh, the idea, you know, we used uh, godly play and various other catechesis instruments that would bring our adults into a face-to-face connection with the child, where they would be listened to, communicated to, um, but also you're with the child in the learning experience. And so we had adults come out of that saying, oh, my goodness, I think I just learned more about God. I just think I learned more about who Jesus is in that half an hour, 45 minutes than probably they did. And so what happened is they wanted to be in children's ministry more. more. Um, But what we're trying to do there is say, okay, this isn't just for Sunday gathering, the close circle. This is actually the way we want to be with children when we're in our homes, eating meals or gathering in our neighborhoods. And furthermore, what we learned is that in our neighborhoods, there'd be various places where, I mean, children are struggling to have safe places in our culture There's a lot of distrust in our culture, a worry, a concern over children, a franticness about the way we deal with our children, program after program, you know. And here's an opportunity to say, no, we will be with children. And so when mom's groups would get together, when various other groups in the neighborhood, we were just training people to be with children. You know, our children became, um, I learned this in my own life, children became the means to connect us to people outside the gospel in in ways few other spaces could. And we developed relationships through our children just by being able to connect and be available and, and have that space where God's working between us, the adults, and the children. And That's good. That's yeah. good. Uh, and I wonder, uh, David, I think that those are really concrete suggestions where when uh, normal church people begin to realize that everybody in the church should have a ministry to children, which I think takes place at our church, Church of the Redeemer, uh, we all love all the new babies that are coming to our church and the little kids. We, we know their names and we, we talk to them. I think they're treated really well. Uh, so I think that this is really a, a good vision, that instead of assigning this to one person in our church, Stephanie Booth, uh, this is something that the whole church participates in. I wonder uh, what you, uh, how you describe the discipline of Eucharist, because I have a suspicion we're not talking about uh, one, uh, one centimeter by one centimeter little square pieces of tasteless something uh, and a little cup of grape juice, as small a cup as possible, uh, served in gold bowls and gold trays uh, or silver. I, I wonder what you mean by Eucharist, because I know you have some uh, fresh thinking on that as well. Well, uh yeah, uh, this is a huge, long discussion. Uh, what what I think, if, if I can put it this way, um, the Roman Catholic mistake, and I do 
love my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. But the Roman Catholic mistake at Trent in defense of themselves over against the Reformers was to say the presence of Christ is located in the bread and the cup. It's they wanted to locate it in a material being and you know, Luther and others accused them of wanting to control the Eucharist. The the Protestant mistake, if I can put it this way, or maybe I should say it more directly, the Pentecostal or the evangelical mistake is to locate the presence of Christ in myself, internally, so I have a subjective experience of the presence of Christ. You know, and what I want to say is the Anabaptist understanding is that the presence of Christ is not just or located only in the bread of the cup, not just located internally. Actually, it's among us. This community Christ has come to be with at the table. He promises to be among us. And it's there where we can recognize him in the eating, as the Emmaus Road experience uh, uh, tells us. And so what happens in this this very important institutional discernment of Eucharist is we learn these basic skills. We learn Thanksgiving, opening our lives to what God would do around this table. You know, when you give thanks, you open up your life to receive. We discern, uh, we submit, surrender ourselves to what God's doing and to each other. There's an, it's, most of us say around the table, let there be no enmity between us and another person before, and discern that before coming to the table. It's a social reality that brings the logic or the grammar, I call it, of forgiveness of sin, reconciliation of all things, and the renewal of all things in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we learn to recognize around this table together, but it goes into our homes, neighborhoods, even those half circles where I would sit around at McDonald's and share this glorious uh, large coffee, three creams, and a number three breakfast sandwich with my brothers and sisters. Most of the time, they were brothers in in McDonald's. Is we would I would tend to what God was doing among us, and this expands the table into all the world, and we begin to discern what He's doing in the world, and people get to see the kingdom and get invited into the kingdom as we proclaim the gospel. Well, that's very good. So Eucharist is not simply uh, what takes place uh, on a Sunday morning at the after a sermon or attached to the end of a service, but Eucharist is a way of life that is expressed when we're together, but also um, begins to reach into our world as we begin to share table with others, and we extend the offering of Eucharist. We extend the practice of thanksgiving to God and fellowship with one another and the extension of the presence of Christ through that meal in ways that uh, should not be locked into an institutional arrangement, but should be seen as an expansive missional force in the world. Is that right? That's, that's, that's pretty darn close. I said it probably better than you did, didn't I? Uh, no. But, uh... oh, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> but, uh... But, Scott, uh, you know, uh, this, this is the pattern I see continually in the New Testament. And I always get on dangerous ground when I start talking about the New Testament with you. But this is the pattern I think I can defend, that that uh, these disciplines, and by the way, got them through uh, Anabaptist theologian John Howard Yoder, who, 
who helped us see that these are not just uh, institutional uh, disciplines. These are ways of life. I mean, all of us have to eat, but do we realize that Christ can be present at our tables? And, you know, we always used to have an evening meal before society got so screwed up. We used to have an evening meal, and what did we do? We gave thanks, or Eucharist, before the meal, inviting the presence of Christ to sit and be with among us and work in our lives around that evening meal. And that was a family meal, but it was also a household meal, and it should be a church meal. And then when we go into the the places, you know, I always say... Uh, there's a Eucharist in that bar. We, they just don't know it yet. Christ is at work. They just need somebody to show up and tend to what he's doing in people's lives. People are hungering to be known and to be loved and to know others and be loved. <clears throat> That's what happens around the Eucharist. And and yet uh, it's happening for the world now in the bars, in the restaurants, in the third places and all that stuff. And we need to teach people how to enter those places and be present to what he's doing in a way that's non-coercive, that's open to what he would do, and yet discerns his presence. I think that um, what happens in, in, as we're guests in that guest location around the table is, the question is not, is Christ present? The question is, will he be welcomed there, in the words of Luke 10 and the parallel passages in the gospel? And for those who welcome him, they're entered into the kingdom and they're ushered into the other two circles. And uh, and I believe when in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, which I, I believe is a dotted circle, a middle circle, the feeding of the 5,000, um, I, I believe when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot enter the kingdom. I believe that's Jesus telling the people, you got to go all the way back to the closed circle, or else you're you're not completely you're, uh, you're, you're, you're you have not truly fulfilled your way of life in the kingdom of God. That's where we discern ultimately the kingdom of God for the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that's good, and I think that this uh, your approach here illustrates what you've talked here about children, and you've talked here about Eucharist perfectly illustrates the, uh, the importance and the subject matter of your book and illustrates that uh, we, we need to avoid locking uh, the church's disciplines into specific moments of time on Sunday morning and to begin to see them as an expression of a way of life that occurs on Sunday morning but also occurs throughout the week in our, in our regular life and in our fellowship with one another as well as in our extension into our local communities. So I want to uh, I want to say I'm excited about this new book. I think we have uh, a lot to look forward to uh, when it comes out, and I'm hoping that many people who are listening to this podcast today, whether they're your followers or my followers, uh, we're cross pollinating our podcast today. Um, I, I hope that many will buy it, uh, buy your book, read your book, discuss it in their churches. And begin to see how they can uh, it can make an, an impact in their in their local church and in their own life. So, I wanna I wanna thank you for your book and for taking your time from McDonald's and slurping some of that McDonald's coffee as we were talking today. We had a little session, you and me, over some McDonald's coffee and whatever that uh, crap is that you drink. I have a bean. I can tell you that I finished my coffee. You didn't hear any slurping, and it was an exquisite. It was an exquisite cup of finely made coffee, 
extracted from the beans through a careful process of an espresso machine. I'm a, I'm a blue-collar guy. This is why I'm a White Sox fan. You're a little bit of a snob. That's why you're a Cub fan. <laughs> 